Good morning. If you're new to Trinity, my name is Matt, and the last time I got to preach with real live people in this room was way back on March 8th, the final day right before we had to shut down. Uh, so it is so good to see the top half of your faces. Um, but seriously, I-, I love you all, and it's really encouraging to see you here and to be worshiping together with you. But that's not the only reason that today is a special day for me. Today is also my wife Hannah and my anniversary. So in honor of that, I wanted to share a story with you from our first anniversary. So when we had been married for a year, we wanted to go on a vacation and we decided to go camping. Or I should say that our bank account decided that camping was our only option. But anyway... We arrived at the campsite, we unpacked, set everything up, uh, we cooked some dinner, and then we sat around the fire for a while, and eventually we got tired, we climbed into the tent to go to sleep. But we were only in there for a couple minutes and we heard a noise out in the woods, there was something, some kind of animal rustling out there. And it started getting closer to our campsite, so we got really quiet and listened to try to see if we could figure out what it was. The rustling came closer and closer, eventually it stopped right outside our tent, and we still you know, weren't sure what size animal this was or what was out there. When things are unknown, sometimes it makes you a little more nervous. You just don't know what it could be. So I decided that I should probably do something to scare it away, you know, make a loud noise. So I smacked the side of the tent. Wrong move. Uh, Instead of running away, suddenly two claws appeared pushing against the side of the tent. (laughs) So we both jumped up really quickly. Hannah got behind me, and I'm just staring at the claws. Fortunately, earlier when I had driven the, uh, the tent stakes into the ground, I tossed the hammer inside the tent. I don't know why, but I did, so I saw the hammer on the ground, and I just picked it up, and I stood there with my arm, like, pulled back, ready to swing the hammer. We're still trying to kind of figure out what it was, but I figured if the claws ripped the tent and it came bursting in, I'd just swing for its head, whatever it was, as fast as I could. That was really my only play. So we stood there, frozen still, in a silent standoff for about two minutes or so. And normally two minutes goes by pretty quickly, but it goes a lot longer when you're wondering what mystery animal you're about to have one shot at with a hammer. So we stood there, after a while, it got bored. It just walked away and rustled back in the woods, and we still didn't know what it was. We got back under the covers, but it wasn't that easy to fall asleep very quickly after getting scared like that. Normally, you'd feel crazy wondering if some mystery animal might sneak into your campsite and break into your tent in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, but it didn't seem so far-fetched anymore. It took a little while, a little extra time to fall asleep that night, and it would have been easy to just get freaked out each night as it got dark and, and kind of let that fear influence the way we felt the rest of the trip. But we tried to let it go and just hoped that things would look up and improve from the ominous start to our vacation. And this morning I want to look at a passage from Acts chapter 16 that has several different ways of contrasting these ideas of fear and hope. There's several different ways that plays out in here. Uh, Last week we were reading through uh, Acts chapter 15, and Pastor Kirk talked about a big debate the early church had, and and they were arguing whether there were certain rituals they needed to do in order to earn God's love, and their conclusion was, no, Jesus is enough. We're accepted by God through him. Well, right after this, Paul and Barnabas, two of the key guys that were at this debate, they split up and they went out on two separate missionary journeys. And Paul took along a guy named Silas. Did I just say Paul and Silas? If I did, I met Paul and Barnabas. I realized as I said that, it sounded like I repeated myself. So Paul and Barnabas split up, and Paul took along Silas with him on a missionary journey. 
And partway through, they picked up two other guys you may have heard about as you read the Bible, Timothy and Luke. And Luke is the one who eventually writes this book of Acts. So for part of this stuff, he's right there with them. Now, as they're um, traveling through what's now modern-day Turkey, they sense God calling them to Philippi, which is a city in Macedonia or northern Greece. So they, they head over there, and the passage we're going to read today tells about their whole time in Philippi, like what went on when they got there. And we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 16, verses 13 to 34. So if you want to follow along, if you brought a Bible with you or you want to use a Bible app on your phone, I'll be reading from the NLT version, um, but you can open up to Acts chapter 16, verses 13 to 34. And let's pray before we jump into that. God, your word is alive and powerful, and we just ask that you would move in us this morning. We know that you are here. We ask that you would open our hearts, that we would be able to hear your voice in this, that you would challenge us, that you would help us to grow, that you would show us your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 16. I'll start in verse 13. This is a pretty long passage. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened up her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her whole household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. This whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the, prisoner, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Don't! Stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. So there's a lot going on in that passage. It's pretty long. There's a lot of different segments there. But what I want to do first is walk through it and kind of point out how there is a consistent presence of fear for most of these characters. 
Uh, there's a way that fear tries to influence their lives and the actions of all these people, how it can control them or, or try to control them. So first, right at the beginning of this passage, in verse 13, we learn that after arriving in Philippi on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of worship, Paul and this band of missionaries, they go outside the city to a riverbank. Now, normally Paul's strategy when he wants to share Jesus with people in a new city is to go to the local synagogue, to start with his fellow Jewish people there and then branch out. But there's no synagogue in Philippi. And there's two possible reasons for that. The first one is that to have... Is this falling off me? Yeah, it is a little bit. The first one is that to have a synagogue, you needed a quorum of ten Jewish men. And there may not even have been ten Jewish men in the city of Philippi. But if there were, there was also another problem. Philippi was an official Roman colony city. And because of this, uh, they worshipped a pantheon of Greco-Roman gods, and this was woven into the fabric of daily life. Um, everybody, this was what life revolved around these religious customs. And it was a way that it kept everyone connected socially, but they also saw it as a pressure to appease the numerous gods, to make sure that their city and the people in it stayed successful and, and their lives could be flourishing. And because of this, it, it was a high-stakes thing to make sure they worshipped these gods and not the wrong ones that might make them mad. And so foreign religions were not welcome. Anyone who didn't worship these gods, such as Jewish people or Gentiles seeking the God of the Bible, were pushed to the margins. You couldn't get together and worship inside the city. So we find Paul and his co-workers going out to the riverbank because right from the beginning of this passage, the scene is being set that these Jewish people and, and Gentiles seeking God are... They're afraid of being marginalized in their day-to-day -day life. They kind of expect that to happen. I want to jump down now to verse 16, where we hear about the slave girl who is possessed by a demon. In all likelihood, either this girl or her family before her was kidnapped, uh, transported to an area far away from what she was used to, probably a city that she didn't know, and then sold off as property. And, and now every day she wakes up with no control of what she can do. Someone else has the authority to dictate every one of her actions. And if that wasn't enough, somehow she's also come under the manipulation of a spirit or a demon here. Uh, and her entire life now is being controlled, both outwardly and inwardly, by other powers. And, and so fear is probably a constant experience for her. The Apostle Paul delivers her from this demon possession, but then her masters react with a different kind of fear. She had this ability to tell fortunes, it was bringing them a profit, and now they're worried that their lucrative income stream is gone. So they drag uh, Paul and Silas to the city, they, the, to the court, they stir up a crowd by playing off of anti-Jewish prejudices that were there and, and the fear of foreigners, and the city officials get scared because it seems like a public riot could be developing. Their main job is to keep things under control, and if this disturbance gets too crazy, you never know how the emperor in Rome will react. So, so they get scared of what might happen to them. They skip past a formal and legitimate trial, and they just jump to conclusions. They have Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison, and now Paul and Silas find themselves in the maximum security section of a Philippian prison, a, a place where they have very few connections and no influential ones at that. Now, on top of that, their feet are locked up in stocks, which was a painful thing, but also meant so they couldn't make any move to escape if they wanted to. Uh, they began by the riverbank already knowing that they were kind of pushed to the margins, but things have only gotten worse, and now they're stuck in a jail 
in a place where they have no power influence and no say in what the eventual legal outcome is going to be. Now, on top of this, to make it just a little more intense, there's a massive earthquake that happens in the middle of the night. So the jailer wakes up, he's overcome with fear, and that's because not just his job, but his life depends on this. If he loses any prisoners, not just Paul and Silas, he doesn't just get fired, he gets killed. That's how being a jailer worked. That's part of, the, part of that job, unfortunately. And so in a moment of complete despair and fearing for the worst, he's about to take his own life instead of facing the public shame and humiliation of an execution. The whole passage here in all these different characters, it's suffocating in fear. And the various fears throughout this um, threaten to control each of the characters in this story. And ancient Philippi, I'm sure, feels very far away from our reality today. But I think a lot of these fears are still things we can get tangled up with today, too. You know, for some of us, it's easy to feel like we're being pushed outside the city limits and down to the riverbank. It's easy to feel like our voices aren't being heard or that a lot of our beliefs aren't being accepted anymore. You know, years ago, it seemed like a lot of our core values were shared by the majority of the people around us, but as our society gets more pluralistic, that's not so much the case. There's a bunch of different values and beliefs that are swirling around and clashing together. And in this kind of environment, it's easy to get fearful that we are losing cultural power and social influence. It's easy to fear that we could become marginalized like they were. And in some ways, this is probably a stronger fear for us because in Philippi, they never imagined that they could have influence or power, but we've gotten used to being in a more comfortable position than that. And so it feels like something essential that we've gotten used to could be slipping away. And this kind of fear can threaten to control the way we interact with our culture, with our community, and even with our neighbors. When we're scared of losing power and influence, often our fear leads us to fight. We approach everything ready for battle and believing that if we don't win this one, everything could go downhill from here. It's all going to be over. And on a worldly level, I don't know why this microphone keeps falling off my ear, <laughs> but on a worldly level, it makes sense to be tempted by that way of thinking. Whoever has the most power gets to dictate the future. Right? But that's the voice of fear. That's not the voice of God. Because the voice of Jesus would help us to grow in compassion for everyone around us, regardless of whether we have the same values. But the voice of fear causes us to grow in hostility when people believe other things or have different values than we do. And so some of us feel like they could have felt down by the river bank. Some of us share in those same fears. Now, you may feel more like the girl uh, in this passage who's a slave who's possessed by the demon, or like Paul and Silas, though, uh, where just your daily lack of control is what scares you. And, and for some of us, this could be about your job, this could be about your relationship, this could be about the future. For a lot of you, it could just be, what is school going to look like in the fall? That feels so up in the air for a lot of families. It could be making you feel anxious. I think I'm going to grab a handheld mic, if that's okay. This thing is just completely falling off. Jim, I've got a, a green one here, if this works. One, two, check, one, two. Sorry about that. I'm going to have to mold this to my ear and get a custom one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, some of us, just the fear of outcomes that we can't control 
can really give us anxiety on a daily basis. And that can, like I said, have to do um, with relationships, with our job, with what the future might hold. And you can tend to develop an intense perfectionism where you're overstressed or overworking because you're trying to cover for every imaginable possibility that could go wrong. Or another reaction to that is you start avoiding maybe people you enjoy being around or meaningful events because you're afraid of not being able to control the outcome and, and what might happen. And it just scares you, the unknown of how things could go. Like the slave girl's masters in the story, some of us are more overcome by financial fears. And that may, there may be very realistic reasons why we feel that way. Maybe we've had times where we've come up short for groceries, um, for rent, for a car repair bill, for all kinds of things. Maybe we feel the, perfect, the pressure of providing for our family or saving for a college fund or retirement. And over these last few months, those fears have been magnified even more for a lot of us. Some people have been laid off. Others have had salaries reduced. Some of us just have a constant concern paying attention to the economy and wondering which direction it's going to go in and how that will affect all of us. I pieced together several different part-time jobs for a while uh, when I was younger, early on in our marriage. And one of them was about 10 to 12 hours a week, and I did it all from home. But after a while, I got more effective at the things I was doing, and I could do them a lot quicker. I could get it done in about five or six hours. I didn't get a raise, though, so that wasn't actually very helpful to me because now I had less hours that I was getting paid for. So there was a temptation to think, this used to take me twice as long, and they had to pay me for all of it. Maybe I should just round up and tell them I'm still working those same amount of hours anyway. That was a question of, would I be driven by fear to do something dishonest, or could I be driven by trust that God would still provide? even if things didn't look so easy. At the end of this passage, we come to the jailer. And at first, you know, we probably wouldn't feel like we relate to somebody who um, you know, just witnessed an earthquake and is now worried about imminent execution. But if we look a little closer at this, I don't actually think death is the thing that was scaring the jailer the most because he's about to end his own life anyways. It seems that what he's scared of is the public shame and humiliation and judgment that comes along with that in his society. And we can probably actually share a lot of those fears more easily. Many of us wrestle with social fears, worrying what others think of us, how they'll react to our decisions, if we'll truly be accepted by the people around us. That kind of fear can cause us to change who we are depending on who we're with or to try to hide the parts of ourselves that we're most insecure about because we wonder, you know, if I'm really open and honest, will people actually love me? Will people even like me? Some of these examples may hit pretty close to home for some of you, maybe not so much. But either way, I'd invite you to spend some time this re week reflecting on where fear could be threatening to motivate your attitude, your choices, your actions. We don't always recognize it because I don't think we consciously feel afraid as we go through life, at least most of the time, but fear is subtle and it sneaks in and, and tries to influence the way we live. Fear threatens to control each of the characters in our passage, but for many of them, hope sets them free. And what I mean by hope here is a Jesus-centered attitude that expects God to work even when the circumstances look scary. When Paul and his companions come to Philippi, they know that they don't have any power or influence to get a big audience in the middle of the city, but they still trust that God will be working on the margins if they go out to the riverbank and start there. They let that hope lead them, and then they watch to see what God will do. 
First, God moves in the heart of this woman named Lydia. Her and her whole family and the people working for her, they come to know Jesus. And then she opens her home, and that's where the first church in Philippi starts, right in her house. And, and God uses, works through their hope and multiplies that through her generosity and hospitality. A little while later, this girl who was a slave and was demon-possessed comes onto the scene. And this section can be a little confusing. In verse 17, it says, She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. That sounds like a good thing, right? She's, she's kind of affirming what they're doing. The only problem is when we hear that, when we hear Most High God written in the Bible, we assume it's talking about the God of the Bible. But if you lived in a Greco-Roman city like Philippi and you heard that, you would think Zeus. So when they heard that, they didn't think the God we're talking about, they heard Zeus. And the other thing is when she said, they'll tell you how to be saved, their concept of salvation was, was not about being reconciled and reconnected to a loving creator. It was more about physical healing if they had a physical problem or about gaining wealth if they were seeking after that. So this was going to be very distracting and, and really kind of throw people off from the mission that Paul was really on about sharing Jesus. So with this repeating day after day, Paul gets exasperated. And when you read that word, you could also think that, was he being impatient with this girl? Does he have no compassion for her? But that's not what's going on here. Uh, Paul is exasperated with whatever spirit is manipulating her, not with her herself. And because Paul has hope that God can do miraculous things, he decides to respond by commanding that spirit to leave her alone. And, and God responds to that and does do that, and she is delivered. We don't hear any more details about what happens to this girl. But based on the language and the style of this account, most Bible scholars think she wasn't just delivered from this demon, but she became a Christian, started following Jesus, and joined the Philippian church at Lydia's house. So again, we see God acting through hope by bringing salvation and deliverance. And I want to jump down now to the end of the passage, around verse 26 or so, back in the jail. Paul and Silas have been shackled and locked up in prison. The jailer is most likely aware of what they've been up to. Maybe he heard them one day. Maybe he was there when the city officials and the whole kind of mob scene happened. Or if not either of those, when the guys got delivered to the jail, someone probably filled him in. So he most likely knows that they are claiming to have a connection with a divine power. Now, at first, he might have scoffed at this. We don't know. But when an earthquake strikes in the middle of the night, he puts two and two together, and he sees this as divine judgment. This freaks him out. He doesn't know what's coming next, but thinking the prisoners have all escaped, he goes to end his own life. But Paul shouts out with a message of hope, stop, we're all still here. Making the connection between the earthquake and the fact that these prisoners have been claiming to know the divine God, he runs up to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Now, again, he probably doesn't say saved, understanding salvation, at least yet, the way we do. In his mind, that earthquake was like a divine warning. There's more judgment coming if you keep going down the wrong path and keep hanging on to these guys. And so he's asking, is there another way forward? Paul and Silas respond by sharing about Jesus. And this Gentile jailer and his whole family become followers of Jesus in the middle of the night. And again, we can see the fruit of God working through hope when in verse 34 it says, He and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. This man was moments away from death, and God gave him the hope of a brand new life. Now, in this passage, I think the key to seeing how powerfully hope works to free us from fear is to look at how Paul and Silas act in prison 
and then to realize that attitude is affecting them in the entire story. Paul and Silas have been unfairly beaten, thrown into prison. They've been put in the inner dungeon. Their feet are clamped up in the stocks. They have no control over what's going to happen next, no influence over the magistrate or what might happen on the legal side of things. So how do they respond? Miss Leanne told us in verse 25, it says, Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Paul and Silas respond to this overwhelming situation with prayer and worship. And they could do this because even if they were afraid, they weren't being controlled by fear. They were being driven by a hope and trust that expected God to work despite their circumstances. And this isn't just a shallow hope where someone says, you know, you should be more optimistic or tells you to just look on the bright side when you're going through something genuinely difficult. This is a deep hope that shows, that allows Paul and Silas to see that life is not always easy. Sometimes it's downright painful. But even when it is, God does not abandon us. God is still at work even in those situations and in that brokenness. It's through that kind of hope that God built the first Philippian church. It's through that kind of hope that a jailer, a slave girl, and a woman named Lydia all meet Jesus and start worshiping together in this church. And God has a sense of irony and also a tendency to work where we think there's no value and where nothing could happen because he wants to remind us that he's always up to something and he could do things even where we don't see something likely. There was a very common prayer that Pharisees would say at this time, uh, lots of religious leaders that Paul would know. There's a very common prayer they would say on a daily basis, and I'm not advocating this attitude, by the way, but this was the prayer they would say, thank you, God, that you didn't make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Ouch. Yeah, pretty harsh. But God sees something else in the people that we minimize. And in the circumstances that we have no hope for. And I don't think it's by accident that the Philippian church starts with that exact same list. A Gentile jailer, a slave girl, and a woman named Lydia. I think God's a little bit playing around showing us what he can do there. Fear threatens to control throughout this passage. And in some instances, it is successful. But Paul and Silas are freed to follow Jesus and trust that God is at work because they have hope in him. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. When you look up the definitions and the synonyms for confidence and assurance, you see the word trust popping up several times. And that makes a lot of sense because this verse is essentially saying real living faith is the trust that God is at work even when we can't see what he's doing and the hope to live based on that trust. The Holy Spirit transforms us when we see ourselves, our lives, and the world through the lens of Jesus. And that's how we end up with a life filled with hope, when He is the thing we filter everything through. But it's so tempting to look through other filters, and that's how fear sneaks in and tries to control us. We could filter life through this pandemic or through the political news cycle, and we'd probably end up living in fear, fear of things that we can't control, or, or fear of losing our power and influence. We can filter life through our bills and our bank statements and end up living in fear that we won't be able to take care of ourselves or the people that we love. We might filter life through what everyone else could be thinking about us or how they're presenting themselves on social media. And that would lead us to live in fear that we won't be accepted or that we can't be loved. Hope happens when Jesus is our primary filter. 
But fear tries to sneak in and cause us to see life through these other things. And we give them too much credit, too much influence over us. And fear uses that to steal the driver's seat and start determining our attitudes, our choices, and our actions. But fear can only drive us when we let hope and trust take the back seat. Fear can only drive us when our hope in what Jesus is up to and our trust in God to really work is set to the side and minimized. So I invite you to take some time this week to reflect on whatever fears you may have identified with this morning or any others that pop into your heart. And think about how do you react when you let those fears influence you? And how do you respond differently when you recognize them but lean into trust and hope instead? Paul and Silas could have easily lived in fear, but they act out of hope. And this passage shows that their hope is not misplaced. God is at work, and that hope is real. We need that kind of hope to live by. And God offers us to be filled up with a deep hope like that, but we have to receive it. We have to trust Him and take it in. We have to keep holding on to that kind of hope when fear threatens to sneak in. This kind of hope has the power to truly change our lives, but not if it's just a concept in our head or something, you know, Christians are supposed to think. It has to be something that we really receive, take in from God, and it sinks down into our heart. It starts to change who we are and how we act. We really embody that hope. And when we begin to embody the hope of Jesus, it doesn't just change our own lives. Like Paul and Silas with Lydia, the jailer, and the slave girl, it has a chance to share hope with people around us too. The world needs hope. Our community and our neighbors need hope. Our family and our friends, they need real hope to hold on to. And people are looking for hope. If you noticed in verse 25, the key verse in this whole passage, when it says, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Right after that, the sentence continues, and it says, and the other prisoners were listening. I don't think they're the only ones that listen when somebody has a real hope to hold on to. When real hope is shared, people listen because they're looking for it too. And if Jesus is transforming our lives, that hope will grow inside of us and begin to radiate out, and others will see it and hear it. The most repeated command in the entire Bible is, do not be afraid. Of all the things that we could be commanded, the most repeated over and over again throughout the entire Bible is, do not be afraid. And that's because God knows that there are a million different fears out there that can threaten to control our lives. But the hope of Jesus is what sets us free. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the story. We thank you for all these miraculous and amazing stories throughout this book of Acts um, where we see people doing daring and bold things, and we wonder, would we do stuff like that? We wonder, what is motivating them? How can they go out on a limb and do these things? God, it's because they're living through your hope, because that hope has completely changed their lives. It's not just a part of their lives, but Lord, it's informing everything about their lives. We ask that your hope would work that way in us too. We ask that you would help us to see how real your hope is, how deep it is for us. Help us to receive it, accept it. Help it to change the way that we see our own lives, that we see the people around us, that we see the world and the, and the way that we live in it. 
that others might see your hope through us too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.